Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. This is our once a month show at four o'clock every fourth Thursday. Typically, we are call-in show live, but due to the pandemic, we're using uh, new technology, Zoom, which is always a challenge for me. Every month, I, I have a guest. This is my fourth guest on Zoom. I also like to always advertise my uh, Pet Sounds, which is a short 7.30 on Sunday morning. So when you're uh, listening to WERU at 7.30 in the morning, you can hear some of my short topics. And today, I want to... Uh, introduce Danielle Dairia, um, who's a wildlife biologist, and we're going to be talking about great blue herons, which uh, I love to watch great blue herons on the ocean, standing there looking, waiting to, to catch something, and all of a sudden they disappeared, and that's what got me interested to find out some something about that, and I think Danielle is a person. So good afternoon, Danielle. How are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, John. Ah, love to have you. Thank you. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How you got interested in Great Blues? Who you work for? Who you? What your profession is? Sure. So, as you said, my name's Danielle Dioria. I'm a wildlife biologist with Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, and I've been working for the department since 2006. Um, first, started out doing more habitat mapping type work, but then quickly within a year or two, I moved into our bird group, which is kind of a small section of our department that studies birds on statewide scale um, to understand their populations and uh, the status of all the different species in the state. And the birds that I focus on include the great blue heron, but also other long-legged wading birds, as well as common loons and marsh nesting birds like rails and bitterns and black terns. And so my job is mostly focused on understanding those species in Maine, what their populations are doing, whether they're stable, declining, increasing, and then how we can kind of make sure that they're doing well in the state and what kind of conservation measures uh, can we enact to kind of help them out. And maybe we can go into that a little later on about uh, back, backyard help for habitat. A lot of these birds you, you mentioned are pretty secretive, so the public really doesn't know much about them, but how important are they, general wading birds, like the bitterns and the great blue, in terms of the ecology? Because we don't see them, but how do they help? Yeah, no, they're they're really important. Um, you know, they're all part of the larger food web. And when you think of wetlands and some of our uh, water habitats, whether it be lakes, ponds, streams, uh, emergent wetlands, uh, some of these, many of these birds that I mentioned are actual predators within that food web. And they can actually be considered, um, you know, kind of, you uh, I'm trying, I lost the word, but um, kind of sentinels as to how the environment is doing, how those wetlands are doing. They can be bioindicators. That's the word I was looking for. Canary in the bird, canary in the uh, coal mines. Yeah. Yeah. So because they're, some of them, especially the great blue heron, common loon, they're near the top of that food chain. And so understanding their health can help us understand the health of our wetlands and the waters. Well, I'd like to get into a little bit about the great blue and what 
who they are and their life cycle and where they spend their time, because it's kind of a dichotomy. You see them on the ocean and the inland. Um, so are they, are they freshwater? Are they saltwater? Are they both? They're both. Um, they nest both. So in Maine, they nest throughout the state. They could be nesting on our coastal islands um, in live trees or dead trees. They could be nesting in beaver wetlands um, inland within the state. Uh, sometimes they're nesting in upland pine stands uh, on lake shores. So they are, they're quite um, widespread throughout the state. And really some of the requirements for their nesting is one, they mostly nest in trees, at least in Maine, that's thought, you know, exclusively where they nest. I've heard of some birds nesting on the ground before, but primarily they nest in trees. Those trees can be live trees, dead trees, they could be conifers, they could be deciduous trees. So as long as they've got some trees to nest in, they're good. But they also want to be near wetlands um, where they can forage. So they're exclusively carnivorous, and primarily their prey is fish and amphibians. They will go after snakes and rodents in the uplands as well. Um, so they need to be near some really good high-quality foraging habitat. Are they uh, primarily uh, live animals? Yes. They, won't, they won't go after dead animals? They're not scavengers? Yeah, I don't know of anybody who's really observed them ever really eating something that's dead unless it's been extremely freshly dead. Because sometimes they'll kill their own prey, you know, when they catch right. it, it actually will kill it. But um, Yes, they're going after live prey, and it's really the movement of that prey that um, kind of spurs them to strike at the prey. So uh, they're really keying in on movement, whether it's the frog or a crayfish or a fish or a snake, whatever it is. So it's not sound? No, not okay. usually, yeah. When you're seeing them standing very quietly on the shore amongst the uh, rockweed, they're staring, they're not moving because they don't want to disturb the Correct. Right. So yeah. Do they? Can they see at night? I read something about that. Yeah, they can. Um, I think it's because they have some extra rods in their eyes that allow them that ability. But um, so they can forage into the night. Um, a lot of times, a full moon will help with that. But um, when we've done some of our trapping efforts and gotten to some of the sites. Uh, Early morning, well before sunrise, the birds were already there foraging in what we considered pitch black. So um, they are definitely capable of foraging at night. But do they usually? Is it is it usually? A um, I'd say that primarily they are diurnal, so they're mostly during the day. But if they have high uh, energy needs, they might be going into the night. Or if it's um. If they're trying to capitalize on a good prey source, so I think of like an alewife run or something like that where the alewives are running, they might be there into the night kind of capitalizing on that. Right, right. It's like so, a feast. Yes. Uh, if they catch a large fish, they spear a large fish. I read something about how they uh, get it down. How do they prepare the fish? Do you know anything <laughs> about that? Uh, well, so they mostly will kind of throw their the fish up in the air, you know, toss it a little bit. They want it to, to be somewhat dead going down. That helps, especially with larger prey. 
So they, they'll use their bill or their beak to kind of, you know, compress it a little bit. Uh, they might even tear off some fins, but that's not that common. And then they swallow it whole for the most part. Um, but they're trying to get it streamlined down their throat. So they want head first going down. Uh, yeah, if they head first with the uh, scales, it'd be kind of rough. Yeah. So they may not be dead then. Completely. Right. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes uh, if you're watching a bird that's foraging, you might even see whatever it is they just caught, whether it's an eel or a fish, kind of wiggling as it's going down the throat. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> so. goodness. So you'll never see them at a, uh, at a garbage can or a dump like, like seagulls. They're, they're, out, no. they're out catching wild stuff. Correct. Now, in terms of their uh, nesting, there's certain things that they don't, they want to avoid. Um, humans is one. And um, some other, are there some other things they need to, when they're nesting, they're, they're nesting in certain areas that, that meet some criteria. Are there some criteria that they, they absolutely need? That to be near a food source. But, uh, yeah, is, well, because if someone has a large tract of land, let's say, and there's a, a pond or beaver dam or something, maybe they have some nesting herons. They don't, they don't know it. Correct, yeah. So beaver flowages are by far the top habitat type that they nest in in Maine. And, but the key is usually within those beaver flowages, herons will be nesting in the dead trees that are in the middle of that flowage. So in the middle of the water, there'd be standing dead trees, which we call snags. Um, they like those because it gives them a little extra protection from mammalian predators, like, say, a raccoon or a mink. Just kind of discourages those types of predators from swimming out. You know, it's an extra effort for that kind of a predator to try to get out to the middle of the water, climb up the tree, and then go after the eggs or the nestlings or whatever. Um, so that's one of their very typical habitat settings. How about um, is noise a factor too? Yeah, so usually, um, and it depends. All birds are somewhat individual as well. So you'll find some colonies that are next to, say, a bustling highway. Um, and it's just, they, they become accustomed to certain levels of activity at their colony site. But at that site, if you were to walk into the colony from the highway, then they might get alarmed. So um, it really depends on the specific spot, how long the birds have been nesting there, when that disturbance might have been introduced um, as to how sensitive they are to it. So we have, um, most of our sites are somewhat remote and really not near even somebody's house or very loud places, right? Um, but occasionally you'll get that where people are wonder, how can they nest, right? Like, so there's a colony that's right behind a ball field. Well, they, they set up there probably before there was activity on the ball field. As long as those people don't cross the fence into that stand of white pines, the birds are okay. fine. So do they come back to the same nests? Because you've, you've done some research on that. 
Yeah, so with our tagged herrings, we've got, um, we've had at least five or seven birds that we've tagged um, that we've looked at movements year to year. And they do return to the same colony. And that's pretty known about um, these colonial wading birds. They tend to return to their colony site year after year unless something happens. Uh, whether they had a bad nesting year, sometimes if they don't hatch in a given year, they won't return to that site the next year and they'll find a new site. Or they had a bad experience with a predator. Um, but for the most part, we're seeing that they're going back to the same site every year. And how about the children? Do they seek their own new sites? You know, they hatch in the, they hatch out in the parent site and then they migrate. We'll talk about migration later. Do they come back to their parents' site or do they go find a new one? Well, that's something that we don't know a lot about um, because we haven't really marked any young birds. And so we don't know if they've come back to where they were hatched from. Um, there's thoughts that they would return to at least that vicinity, maybe not return right to the colony, but maybe find another spot somewhat nearby. But that's an area that I really don't have much information on. Interesting. And how big are the colonies? One, two nests, hundred nests? They, yeah, they range from as few as one nest, which is hardly a colony, because usually a colony is a group of nesting birds. Um, but they go up, at least in Maine, we've had as many as 120 pairs in a colony. Wow. Um, but the average is probably between 8 and 12 or so. So we, we tend to have smaller colonies here in Maine. How do they space themselves out in a small pond? Or? Well, actually, they like to be somewhat close together. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so they in one tree you could have several nests, you know, kind of piled up on the branches as you go up the tree. Uh, we've had, you know, one really big sprawling uh, yellow birch on one of the islands had about 13 nests in it. In one so, tree? Yeah, in one tree. Oh, so tree. it you know, varies. Some of them are just single nest trees, but um, they do like, it seems like they prefer to be kind of near all these other birds and that gives them some added protection. It's more eyes on the skies for predators and um, can alert each other to things that are going on so they can react quicker. So the predators, um, do they primarily go after the eggs and the youngins or do they, are there predators that attack the adults? There are predators that attack the adults. Um, it's probably primarily the eggs and the nestlings. Um, but we do have all sorts of um, folks have observed, especially predators like eagles going after the adult great blue herons, wow. um, either at their nest or near the colony. Um, and But primarily, a lot of them are going after the young because they're more helpless. They can't fly. And then some of the mammals will go after the eggs. Or crows and ravens will go after eggs, too. Yeah. So when they're ready to fledge, ready to fly, uh, is it like jumping off the uh, the lake in the middle of the lake? You have to swim to <laughs> fly or you don't? Or is it kind of intermediary steps? Yeah, so they as they get bigger, um, so they're in the nest. The young are in the nest for anywhere between 55 to 80 days. So they're in there for a while, growing for quite a long time. 
So this is they are really for... they're really small when they hatch out. The, you know, it's their eggs are the size of a chicken egg. You know, an average chicken egg. So they start out really small, and they have to grow to about three feet tall within two or three months. And so towards the end of that period, they start, they become what we call branchers. So they start walking out on the limbs of the tree and getting a little more brave, you know, getting a little more daring, and they'll start stretching their wings, flapping. They might do short, um, you know, hops from branches to branches. That's all part of learning to fly and testing their abilities. And then you know, when they do take their first flight, I mean, I can't say that I've necessarily seen what I know was the first flights, but the young that do kind of fly off, they might just be within that wetland where they're nesting and fly down and they might be a little clumsy, but um, they seem to do okay. And usually they have something to land on, you know, it's not really deep water. No nets though. No, oh, no nets like the uh, acrobats. Right. Uh, so when do they when do they start hunting themselves? Because they're busy trying to fly. They can't. Can they hunt? Do the parents right. still feed them? I mean, how long do the parents feed them? Yeah. So they say that it's about a few weeks after they've actually fledged or taken that first flight. They often will go back to the nest to be fed by the parents, but they'll also be, you know, testing their own foraging skills. You know, they'll be out um, underneath those nest trees in the wetland, uh, tooling around and trying to see what they can catch themselves. So, so what's, the, what's the most dangerous predator in Maine for these, for the herons in general? I would say, I mean, I would say bald eagles probably. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're an aerial predator, so they can come at them. You know, they don't have to climb the tree. They can just fly in and um, have access to their nests and their nestlings and even the adults, they'll chase the adults around um, until the adults are tired. Eagles are a lot more agile than herons. Herons, you kind of think of with their flight pattern, they're a little more slower and graceful and eagles have the ability to be a little more agile. So um, definitely would say, you know, an eagle, even something like a goshawk would go after the young in the nest. Uh, raccoons are actually one of our, what seem to be in some places a big predator. So if there's like a decent raccoon population near a colony, that might be a problem for that colony because those, the raccoons will, what we've seen with some of our work is they'll actually go to a colony night after night and, uh, kind of almost go on a killing spree, you know, going from nest to nest and cause wreaking havoc. And then eventually the whole colony fails. So the the adults can't fend them, can't defend them. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're good at that. Um, we've had some sound recorders up at night that you know you can hear the distress calls of the adults just off and on all night long, um, and pretty sure it was in response to raccoons going through the colony and um, killing some of the youngsters. Wow. And how about owls? Yeah, owls are known to predate the young. Um, we actually sometimes have great horned owls that nest within a great blue heron colony. So we've even had one nest tree have a great horned owl nest and several heron nests in the same tree. 
which seems like that would be a little too close for comfort to have a predator like that nesting yeah. either right below you or right above you. A little bit nerve-wracking. Yeah, in a couple situations, it actually worked out fine for all the birds involved. Um, and in other scenarios, we've seen that the presence of the owl has actually deterred the herons from nesting there altogether. Because the owls nest earlier in the season, so they're usually already there, established on one of the old heron nests. The herons come back from their migration, and they have to make that decision, do I stay or do I go? Do I sit this out and nest near this potential predator, or do I go find a new spot? And sometimes they go find a new spot, sometimes they deal with the owl. Fascinating. This is uh, Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. I'm talking with wildlife biologist Danielle Bearia, uh, who is um, doing a lot of research on the great blues. And one of the things that um, is fascinating to me is not only fascinating animals, but they seem to have disappeared. And we're going to get to that in a couple minutes as to what she thinks is going on. Uh, but I want to get back to the nesting. Who builds the nests? Well, they both, both the male and female play a role. Um, typically, the male kind of chooses a nest site or a nest spot, you know, which limb of the tree that they're going to want to stake out as their own. Um, and they'll bring in sticks to a female who will then kind of weave those sticks into the nest. So they're kind of, they both have roles in nest building. But um, generally, the male's bringing in the sticks, the female's kind of making the structure. Are there, since they come back to the same place, do some of the nests survive the winter? So there's yeah. old nests, do they um, remodel? Yes, yeah. <laughs> or, so often um, they will, you know, some nests don't make it through the winter, they blow down, especially we've had lots of wind storms and pretty big storms over the last few winters. So, you know, you can imagine even whole nest trees might blow down, but a lot of nests do remain at least some sort of remnant, and then they kind of refurbish that, you know, they, they work on that, use that as their base and just kind of build it up. And what's the, you know, you, see, you look on the outside like a, uh, like an osprey nest, it's a mess. Well, what's the, on the outside, what's the inside like? Is it a nice and comfy? I mean, how do they make it comfortable? No, they don't. Um, they're <laughs> not. So some birds will line their nest with something comfy like feathers or fur. Herons don't line it with anything, really. Um, it's mostly sticks. You might get some reeds from the vegetation below, but it's primarily sticks. Um, and it's not doesn't look comfy to me, but yeah, there's nothing really extra in there. She's like a lumpy mattress. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. How long does it take to make this mess? I mean, nest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, it depends on how much was already there and how much they have to refurbish it. But the birds come back anytime. Uh, some of them are here as early as mid to late March, but on average, they're coming back in early to mid April. And by May, they usually have their eggs laid. So it could be a couple weeks, but they're always um, kind of sprucing it up, even during the season when they have eggs and nestlings. They'll, you'll see adults bring in an occasional stick to work back into the nest, and you'll see them using their beak to try to, what seems to be trying to fix 
a stick that might be out of place or something. So, have you have you seen any ground nesters? They do nest in the ground, right? But have you seen any in Maine? Yeah, I've never seen one in Maine. I mean, I've read that they will occasionally do that. I've seen them pretty low in a tree, so you can picture, you know, sometimes a, a dead tree in the middle of a wetland might get kind of crack in half, right? And it might just be a, almost like a stump. So I've seen them kind of nest just a few feet above the water. Oh. As far as on the ground, uh, I haven't seen that. Now that you meant, we mentioned the, the division of labor, um, are they like uh, some bird species that mate for life? Or are they, are they, do they just mate for that season? Yeah, it, that not a lot's known about that either because you need to have a lot of marked birds to really determine that. But the little bit of research that's been done in the past um, suggests that they don't mate for life, that they typically just kind of, they do return to the same colony. They might end up nesting with the same, you know, mate that next year. Um, but it's not, it's, there's no real drive to do that. So it's kind of a a toss up. Free for all. Yeah. Kind of like, kind of like the late sixties kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. How about um have you have you seen the courtship and bonding displays? The the ritualized greeting? Can you explain anything that you've witnessed? bit. I actually try to, and I recommend this for everybody, I try to avoid colonies really early in the season because that's when the birds are, um, you know, pretty susceptible to disturbance. And so um, I don't get to see that very often, but I've definitely, you know, seen videos and pictures and everything. And that's when they have these extra feathers, both on their chest and on their back. They're called nuptial plumes because they're used in courtship and they're used to kind of attract a mate. And so that's when they might um, kind of throw their head back and erect these plumes outward. Um, and so, and even sometimes they will kind of walk around the nest, almost like doing a dance or some sort of courtship display. Um, and they'll also do something where they take their bills they kind of grab each other's bill and kind of seesaw back and forth, um, you know, pulling each other's heads back and forth with their bill. So, Sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, do they do they clap the bills? You know, the clapping, or do they just like inter? They just kind of grasp each other's bill, kind of. You know, it could look like they're kissing, I guess, but um, and then they just kind of pull back and forth. Oh, that's interesting. They yeah. mentioned nuptial plume. Is that, um, I read something about powder down mm -hmm. on the feather, on the chest, the feathers on the chest. Uh, is there a difference in what, do you know anything about the powder down? Yeah, so the powder down is actually like the feathers that are underneath all the um, cover covering feathers. So it's more of like really what you call down. It's like the feathers that are closest to their skin. And the powder down is like the feathers continuously grow, but they break down into this um, kind of a powdery substance that they use for preening. Oh, okay. And they actually have on one of their toes, they have a, a little comb. And it's really interesting. If you ever get to see a foot of a heron close up, look for the toe with the comb on it. 
like these little teeth that they actually can, you know, scratch off some of this down and then get it into their other feathers. So it's so the the powdery is a way of removing oily stuff. Is that like fish oil and yeah? So it um, they put the they kind of spread the powder on various parts of their feathers, and that can help with waterproofing. Do they? So they they're, they're colonies. So they and they they nest together. So they're kind of pretty cordial. But how about in the feeding territories? Do things kind of change when they're out there looking for their best yeah. fish hole? Yeah, they do. Um, so they're definitely, you know, they're they're nesting together. They don't mind each other being close together at the nest site. But when it comes to their foraging spots, they tend to be more solitary. They tend to defend their foraging spots more against other herons. You know, they they um, they want it all for themselves in that spot. So they'll you'll see squabbles um, between birds, um, and sometimes it can get you know they can get right on top of each other and kind of fighting each other a little bit too. So that's why usually when I used to watch them on the shore up in Lubeck area. Uh, Usually one, maybe two. Is it possible that a couple would kind of share an area? They might tolerate each other. Um, sometimes you'd have, you might even have kind of what looks like a family group oh. um, in the same area too. But I really don't see that very often. I usually see them one at a time. And if I see more than one, they're usually spaced out pretty good. So. Right. Especially if there's a lot of food. Yeah, social distancing, but all the time. <laughs> you know? But for completely different greedy reasons. <laughs> yes, exactly. So just quickly, you mentioned uh, seasons. Just quickly for our listeners, uh, kind of take us through um, when they come up to Maine, when they're mating, we're, we're broadcasting in late August, what's going on now. Just kind of take us through the from March to the time they migrate, and we'll talk about migration. Uh, yeah. I want to interrupt you for a second. I just want to say this is WERU in Orland, Maine. Uh, this is Dr. John Hunt, host of Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras, and we're talking about great blue herons with Danielle, the wildlife biologist, and she was just about to talk to us about kind of get us from the time they come back from wherever they come back from to the time they leave, wherever they leave, and we'll talk about where they go. Yeah, so usually um, the first herons arrive in Maine around March 15th. I kind of watch uh, all the Maine birds listservs and, and uh, their Facebook page to see who's got the first heron sighting of the year. Um, but it, they really trickle in. So it, it starts in March, but they're really like some of our tag birds haven't gotten here until almost mid-April. So it really depends on the individuals, and it could be – partly because of where they winter, you know, how far away their wintering area is, uh, could be weather-related, all sorts of possibilities there. Then once they get to Maine and decide they're going to nest that year, they, they're at their colony. A lot of times they're returning to the same colonies every year. Um, males tend to choose their spot first, and then the females will choose the male and the, the mate after that. and then couple weeks probably for nest building and courtship. Uh, usually by end of April in southern Maine, beginning of May in 
most of the rest of Maine, you'd have eggs in the nest. So they lay up to up to seven eggs, but I've they lay up to seven eggs. Um, and but often I only see I've only seen as many as five nestlings in a, a nest at one time. So um, it's usually three to five eggs is the average. They'll incubate those eggs for twenty eight days, so about a month. So usually June is when most of our nests have young in them. They catch out um, little fuzzy chicks, pretty helpless uh, in the beginning. But then they grow to be the size, like I mentioned before, you know, to nearly the size of the adult before they're ready to leave that nest. And that can take anywhere from 55 to 80 days, depending on the individuals and how well they're fed how many siblings they have, and how much competition there is, all that. So usually by mid-July to early August, they're um, starting to fledge from their nests. So we're in middle to late August now, and uh, a lot of the birds, pretty much almost all nests have fledged. Um, And then after they fledge, you know, the birds don't really stay together much as family groups. Sometimes they do. But um, they'll kind of spread out. Sometimes they will actually go north before they go south for the winter. A lot of wading birds do that. Um, that's why we end up seeing species like some of the egrets and night herons in other parts of the state where we know that they don't nest, but they kind of go up to Rustic County first before they end up migrating south. Um, so they spread out and then September and October, they're just foraging, probably, you know, really getting ready for migration, fueling up, really just focused on feeding. They don't have to take care of their young anymore. Um, so their home range at that point really shrinks in size. They don't have to go very far. They don't have to commute to a colony. They don't, they just need to find a good spot to feed. So if they're on the uh, ocean, uh, they'll just hang around their feeding spot and at night they just go up into a tree they don't go back yeah a lot of times they have just a favorite roost tree that they they'll hang out in at night uh they might have a few different foraging locations that they go between but they're usually not very far apart um they're just conserving energy and stocking up and so anytime between actually one of our tag herons migrated on september 1st that was really early compared to all the others. And you generally think of them as leaving Maine sometime in October or November. Um, and then they go down to their wintering areas, which can be from what we've seen, the few birds that we've tagged. Uh, we've had birds go to Florida, um, to Cuba, the Bahamas, and Haiti. So they go pretty far south from here. Uh, to find a good place for the winter. Do they have favorite spots they stop on the way down? Tried to look at that a little bit with the movement data, but we haven't seen any patterns yet as to um, real favorite spots. Uh, We do need to look at a little more, but they're pretty variable in how often they stop and how long they stop in certain places. So, um, so far we haven't seen any really big patterns that stand out in that sense. 
Now, I read about another kind of heron that lives down south, going down south of Werdemann, Werdemann heron. Yep. It's uh, what a cross between a great blue and a great white. Do you know anything about that? So there's actually debate over whether they're considered a morph or a subspecies, and that gets into like all the taxonomy stuff. But um, they're basically a great blue heron that is all white that looks you know, similar to a great egret, but they are a bit larger and stockier. The Wordeman's heron is, e is either a white morph color of the great blue heron or it's a subspecies. And it's really restricted to South Florida and the Keys. And then I think there's even some... They don't migrate. Okay. They uh, migrate a short distance. Sure, okay. And uh, so the great blue is the one of all the great herons, because there's that white one, they're the ones that migrate the most. Okay. I think it depends on where the birds originate or breed. So when you go further south from Maine, some birds might not need to migrate in the winter. So, and we even have some birds that overwinter in Maine. It's not very many. Um, and I don't think they do very well. I, I don't think they find quite enough food and they often are malnourished or starving. But if you go down to Massachusetts or New York or New Jersey, a lot of those birds don't migrate or they just go a short distance to a favorite foraging spot, you know, two states south. Well, um, getting to the question of the, the day, uh, a number of years ago, suddenly the great blue heron population just literally disappeared. I mean, I, I even noticed that up in Lubeck. They just weren't there anymore. And there was really no one knew what was going on. So I figured I'd ask you what uh, what happened. What's going on? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't really know what's going on. We're trying to figure that out. Um, so since the 1980s, we've seen primarily a decline on the coastal portion of our population, the, the birds that nest on our coastal islands. So in areas like down east, the coastal part of down east, we used to have several island colonies and none of them exist anymore except one. Um, and so one of the things that's happened, especially down east, where they used to nest on those coastal islands, uh, there are now eagles nesting on those islands, and there's thought that that is, you know, obviously that's a predator. Um, it's hard to nest close to a predator. Uh, there's also a very um, large eagle population in general down east, not just nesting birds, but uh, adults or immatures that are not of nesting age yet, so there's lots of eagles just around in general. Um, so that's one thing that we think is a factor in the drop in numbers on our coastal islands. So it actually, the data that we have starts in the late 70s, early 80s. And just on our coast, we had about 1,200 pairs of nesting herons just on our coastal islands. By 1995, that was basically cut in half to a little over 600 pairs. So in about 10, 15 years time, and then, since then we're down to maybe 200 to 250. So 
are on those coastal islands. So we've lost a lot of those island colonies. And we think one of the main drivers of that is the resurgence, the recovery of the bald eagle. Um, and they're using those same islands for nesting themselves and um, could be, you know, not only competing for nest sites, but also they're a, a predator. So they're kind of forcing the birds out of that um, little niche that they had. So have you found any um, other contributors, for instance, uh, illnesses, bacteria, viruses, uh, poisons, mercury, lead, any of that? Have you looked in, Have you been able to look into that, or is that kind of hard to do with these guys? We haven't done. We haven't looked at any of that specifically. Um, we don't. It's not like we find a lot of dead herons, um, and usually the ones that we do find or get reported to us are young of the year. So they're often birds that aren't really good at foraging, and they usually are malnourished or starving. Um, but we don't, so we don't think there's a big disease issue going on. Um, you know, other things that could be contributing is other predators. You know, um, I mentioned raccoons before. In certain locations, that can cause a whole colony to abandon, and then they have to figure out where else to go. So, um there could be a shifting of where the birds are and they could be a little more um, ephemeral in where they choose to nest now. So some of our colonies have been active since at least the 1970s. And so that's, you know, 40, 40 years, 50 years almost. Um, so birds are going back there year after year for that whole time. And then, then we have other colonies that blink on and off. So they might be active for a year or two and there's no nest there, and then two years later, there might be some birds that come back. So I think uh, with different pressures on the landscape, whether it's predators or development pressures that might um, be encroaching on wetlands, or even removal of beaver from some wetlands, which ends up drying those wetlands up and making them less appealing for nesting, these birds are having to move around a little more. So target and it's really difficult to like keep track of where they're all going and sometimes it takes a couple years to find where they decided to go after they abandoned the site. When you see a colony collapse, is it a certain time of year? Is it when they, before they fledge? Uh, after? When the eggs are laid? I mean, do you have a kind of a sense of when things are going south? Do you kind of know what, when it's going to happen? Yeah. It seems like a lot of them we had evidence of these raccoons being kind of the culprit. It was early in the nestling. It was early in the nestling stage. So um, you know, they're young in the nest. That often just the presence of young will attract predators. And that, you know, that's kind of a, a prime stage. They're pretty vulnerable, the young are. A lot of times the adults leave the young um, to go forage. And sometimes even both adults will leave, so that leaves them somewhat um, vulnerable. But there are some times when, when the colony will fail in the egg stage. And like this year, we had a really late snowstorm in May. And uh, that, I think, actually caused a couple colonies to fail. 
you know, I think the birds had either already laid eggs and just were not having it with all that heavy snow that came down and, and some of, it, some of it, I think, ruined some of the nest trees and the nests that were built. So it really depends on what's happening that year. You mentioned both adults leaving to uh, hunt, forage, um, and you would think that one would stay behind, right? Is that yeah, because well, there's a shortage of food? Or? There's a benefit to having the colony because some usually there's a couple adults hanging back from other nests. So they kind of rely, it's almost like having babysitters okay. uh, from the other nests. So you might get to a colony and see one or two adults for six nests and all the others are gone. And then every now and then they come back and feed the young and then they're off again. So I hope they get paid well. <laughs> you yeah. Free fish or something. Jeez. So yeah, um, they all take turns, right? Well, they better. They, they better. So right now it's the success of the return of the bald eagle that seems to be right now a, a partial explanation of and these weather catastrophes. Uh, are you seeing a, um, a resurgence? Have they adjusted to this? And wouldn't they adjust to increased predation? Wouldn't they change their ways somehow? Yeah, so one of the things that we think is happening in response to the eagles is uh, picture a large colony on the coast breaking up and splintering into smaller colonies on the mainland. And that actually happened with our largest colony that we had. Back in 2015, the colony just disappeared. And uh, we had no idea exactly what happened. Um, but then that year and the next year, we kept finding new colonies within a couple miles of that on the mainland. Is I mean, I don't know for sure, but it makes sense that that colony of 120 pairs, those birds decided to go find a new spot to nest, but they didn't all go to the same place. They kind of splintered up into smaller colonies. Um, so I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know why a smaller colony is necessarily better, you know, as far as defending against an eagle. Harder except, to find. Yeah, harder to find potentially. Um, you know, they're more spread out. They're not all concentrated in one spot. So it could be an advantage to that. So that's what we've been trying to figure out is have the birds from the coast just shifted inland, you know, and so our statewide population as a whole is fine, or is the decline on the coast also kind of occurring inland? think it's really the decline is just on the coast. So that's caused the state of Maine to categorize the species as a species of special concern? Is that, can you tell the our listeners what that, how si significant that is? That, that yeah, so um, we have different types of status that uh, species of wildlife can be categorized as. And you typically think of threatened or endangered, right, as um, species that are in peril. So we have another category that's not regulatory. It's called species of special concern. And these species can be, are usually ones that either we don't know a lot about 
or we have a hunch that something is going on with their population to be causing a decline. So it's a great blue heron. We listed them as a species of special concern in 2007. So that was before we started doing all the colony monitoring uh, with our volunteers. At that point in time, we knew there was a drop along the coastal population, and there had been a lot of observations of, um, you know, eagles kind of going after young or adults, and a lot of observations of our island colonies being vacated. And so we wanted to investigate it further and have a better understanding. So that was kind of the reasoning behind listing. So. So this led to the Heron Observation Network? Yeah. What's that? Maybe some listeners would be interested. Yeah, so the Heron Observation Network is a citizen science program. So uh, volunteers um, can sign up and choose to adopt a colony. And basically what that means is they um, get assigned a colony that they can go out to during the nesting season. And make observations, so tell us how many nests are there, are they active, are they, you know, being used by birds, um, how successful are they, did they raise young, that kind of thing, and report that back. And so we've been doing that for about 12 years now, um, trying to just get a better handle on the statewide population through that information. Because it's hard to do that as one employee. So oh, come on. Having the, help, having the help of a lot of volunteers is really key in that in that um, kind of data collection effort. And you're using, uh, I understand, using uh, high schools, grade schools, even college, Unity, uh, University of Maine students. Are you uh, collaborating with them? Yeah, so I actually collaborate with schools on kind of a separate project from the colony monitoring, and that's our tracking project where we've put out GPS transmitters on adults and then we can track their movements for several years. And so we've worked with primarily middle school age um, kids as well as high school. They come out in the field and help us find the herons to target for capture. They help us bait them into a site for capture, and then sometimes they've actually witnessed the capture event and seen the bird up close. Oh, cool. And then once we release the bird with the transmitter, then the school, the students, anybody can uh, follow the bird online and look at the data from, you know, the GPS uh, information from where that bird's gone. And, uh, you know, use it in their own science projects or you know, um, help us even answer some questions that we have about the information. They can download that information and, and use it in their classrooms. So there's a lot of different schools that have been following our birds. So uh, the teacher is interested in getting involved or a, a private citizen, they can call you. To Absolutely. You become part of the Heron Observation Network. What about the uh, main birders band? A little fundraising thing? What's that? Yeah, so the birder band is, um, it's a bird band. It's actually a band that you would potentially put on a bird, and it's a similar size that you'd put on a great blue heron, actually. Um, but each year, we've, we've um, sold them for a donation, 
And that donation goes to uh, bird conservation in Maine. It might help with one of our monitoring projects or survey projects for any species, or it could help conserve property that's important to birds, that kind of stuff. But each band has a unique ID number on it. And so if you put that on your binoculars or your camera strap or even your keys, if you lose that item, there's a phone number on there people can call and that we can get that item back to them. So it's like a lost and found kind of helper as well. But just a little extra to raise a little more money for bird conservation specifically. So two, two more things. We have just a couple more, couple of minutes. One is, can, uh, in two words or less, uh, tell people who maybe have a little land, is there anything they can do to help the blue, the great blue? Well, I'd say the first and foremost is protecting the wetlands on the property, protecting the quality of the water, um, kind of having forested buffers around wetlands is very helpful to, you know, protecting those wetlands and the quality of the water there and the foraging that would and then also, um, habitat-wise, you know, even even forests are important for herons um, in the sense of they do nest in upland forests as well. Knowing what a heron nest looks like, where to look for one, and being aware of that before doing any construction or uh, development is useful too. Very good. Okay, so uh, so you're running around in your woods. Got got two minutes. Uh, and you find an injured great blue. So this, this kind of goes along with any injured bird probably, but uh, you have to pay particular attention to the great blue. Mm-hmm. Again, in two words or less, uh, if you come across a blue, a blue great blue heron, what are some of the things you should be doing? Um, call either a wildlife biologist, a warden, or a wildlife rehabber to get advice on what to do about it. It might involve capturing that bird, but you have to be very careful with a heron because they have a very dangerous weapon, which is their beak. And they will go after anything that moves, including your eyeballs. So you be very careful and get some solid advice first. So, so best thing is just go get advice. But in the meantime, would you throw a towel or something over the head? Um, or don't you recommend even touching them? I would recommend like a veterinarian. So that's what. Yeah, no, I would recommend first talking to somebody, but generally we, we do use either a net or a towel, but we always have to grab a hold of that beak first. That's the first thing I always. And keep it in your hands the whole time. Don't let go. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've had to treat a couple of stunned ones and that's what I was told. Get a hold of that (laughs) beak and don't let go. It's good to have goggles on. Good, good point. Good point. (laughs) Uh, we're running, running out of time. We have about another minute. Is there anything that you want to add to our, for our listeners? We went over a I lot. Just, you know, I think a lot of people really enjoy watching great blue herons. They're beautiful birds. Um, you know, just pay closer attention to where they are and, and take, take a moment to just watch them and see how, how beautiful they are, how slow and methodical they are in their movements. Um, and let us know if you ever find a nest, because that's what we want to be mapping all across the state. And don't assume we already know about it. Uh, I would love to know if you know of a nesting colony somewhere. And when they're in flight, 
they, they're very distinctive, right? Their necks are tucked in and their legs are flowing out the back. Yes, yeah, and they're pretty graceful, pretty slow movements. Beautiful animals. Yeah. Danielle Diaria, thank you very much for spending an hour. I know you're, you're very busy this time of year, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, and it's always a pleasure talking about great blue herons, so thank you. Well, maybe you. come back and talk about some of those other uh, more secretive uh, birds in the future. Definitely. Thank you very much. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Ardbarks to Zebras. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug.